Welcome back, everyone. This is Sam. And this is Kareem. And we are two Ankh-Ducks. And this is Ronak. And I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan with Fellow On Call. This special collaboration episode will be covering a brief review of the workup and management of early-stage ER-positive HER2-negative breast cancer and a discussion of the interim analysis of the Phase 3 Natalie trial investigating adjuvant ribocyclib, which is a CDK4-6 inhibitor, in combination with endocrine inhibitor compared to the current standard of care, which is endocrine therapy alone. As our listeners know, we recently covered ER-positive HER2-negative early-stage breast cancer on the fellow on call, and we also previously had a localized breast cancer episode on two OncDocs. And as a reminder, there are about 2 million cases of breast cancer diagnosed annually, with 65 to 70% of them being ER-positive HER2-negative. The majority of these are diagnosed in the early stage, thankfully. So let's start off with a case. We have a 37-year-old female with recent diagnosis of right breast cancer. It measured 4.2 centimeters. The core biopsy revealed invasive ductal carcinoma. It was ER positive, HER2 negative, grade 3, and the KI67 was 20%. There's no special type of histology noted. Clinically, there's palpable and movable 2-centimeter right axillary lymph node, which is also positive for ERPR ductal carcinoma. Remember, premenopausal women with node-positive disease will always need chemotherapy. But what is the standard of care? The current standard of care in these women, like you said, is to give something like a neoadjuvant dose-dense ACT with the goal of possibly downstaging the axilla to prevent something like an axillary lymph node dissection in these women. This is followed by surgery. And then after that, adjuvant anti-estrogen therapy, typically for women who got chemotherapy, we think of doing something like in the premenopausal setting, ovarian suppression plus an aromatase inhibitor, or if they're postmenopausal, just an aromatase inhibitor. So let's talk a little bit about this particular trial in light of what we just discussed. Remember that about one-third of early-stage ER-positive HER2-negative breast cancer patients will have a recurrence at some point. That increases to about half of patients when they're stage three at the time of diagnosis. What this study was looking to do is take our current treatment approach and see if we could add benefit with the addition of adjuvant ribocyclib, which is one of our CDK4-6 inhibitors, on top of endocrine therapy. Yeah, Dan, exactly. And, you know, I think let's just take a step back. We briefly had talked about CDK4-6 inhibitors on one of our pharmacology episodes, specifically when we were talking about abemocyclib. So ribocyclib, like abema, is also a CDK4-6 inhibitor. So ribo is a small molecule cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitor that is specific for CDK4 and CDK6. You know, listeners, you'll recall that these these proteins are really instrumental in the the cell's ability to replicate. So what the drug does is it prevents phosphorylation of the retinoblastoma protein, which subsequently prevents progression through the cell cycle, specifically arresting at the G1 phase. So what I want to really highlight here is that this drug does not cause death to the cell. Rather, it just causes the cell to arrest in that G1S phase. Absolutely. Definitely important to remember that pharmacology And with regards to what our current standard of care is, recall that adjuvant CDK4-6 inhibitor, abemocyclib, in combination with endocrine therapy, has been approved for patients based on the Monarch study. And this established that patients with high-risk tumors had improved invasive disease-free survival at 24 months compared to endocrine therapy alone. And recall the inclusion criteria from this study 
were patients with more than four positive axillary nodes, or if they had one to three positive lymph nodes with at least one of the following criteria, which included a tumor size greater or equal to five centimeter, grade three histology, or a KI-67 greater or equal to 20%. Okay, so with all of that criteria in mind and a great review, let's talk a little more about the Natalie trial. The first thing to note is that this presentation is one of an interim analysis. The study has not completely matured yet, and neither has the data. The other important thing to think about is that this is a huge trial. There was over 5,000 patients being enrolled. So, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the methods of this study. So in this trial, patients were hormone receptor positive or ER positive, HER2 negative, if they had stage 2A disease and they were they had no nodal involvement, so N0, they were still included if they had grade 2 tumors with high-risk features, which they defined as a KI-67 of greater than or equal to 20%. They had an oncotype DX recurrent score of greater than or equal to 26, or they had high-risk genetic profiling. And then, of course, if they were stage 2A and they were N1, then they were also included. Stage 2B, they could be either N0 or N1. Stage 3, they could be N0, N1, N2, or N3. And in total, 5,101 patients were included. And there were 2,524 patients randomized to the RIBO-AI arm, and then 244 2,444 to the AI-only arm. So, you know, this is certainly interesting as they're including patients with N0 disease with more high-risk features. And I point this out because as we heard, you know, in in the Monarch E study, there was no patients included that had N0 disease. So this is now saying that we are also including patients with N0 disease if they have N0 if they have N0 disease, but they still have higher risk features. So this is certainly adding on to our current standard of care. One limitation here is that when we interpret these results, we see that 12% of patients did not get either neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemotherapy, which is not standard of care for node negative disease with high oncotype or high genomic risk on mammoprint. This would tip the scales in favor of ribocyclic because something is better than nothing. Yeah, I think it's good to point that out. And so patients were randomized one-to-one to to receive ribocyclic at 400 milligrams per day for three weeks on, one week off for three years, plus an AI, which would have been letrozole or nastrozole for greater than five years. You added a gosarelin in men and premenopausal women versus, and so this is a comparing arm, is AI with or without GNRH. And the primary endpoint was invasive disease-free survival. Secondary endpoints were recurrence-free survival, distant disease-free survival, overall survival, pros, safety and tolerability, as well as PK. The other thing that I want to point out in this study that Sam mentioned why three years, right? Because the current literature with abemocyclib supports two years of adjuvant abemocyclib, and now we're saying three years of ribocyclib. So what's the thought behind this? And what the trial suggests is that because this drug does not induce cell death, it causes cell arrest, they believe that extending the duration of 
this arrest period will induce cell senescence and therefore promote you know, a more prolonged cell cycle arrest, which can provide benefit to the patients. I suppose that is a that is a reason. Curious to see what they what they grounded that in, but it's interesting to to hear about certainly. So what they found in this interim analysis was that at a median follow up of twenty seven point seven months, there was an absolute difference in IDFS or invasive disease free survival of three point three percent, favoring the ribocyclic group. The risk of invasive disease free survival was reduced by twenty five point two percent. And we previously mentioned this distant disease-free survival endpoint, which is a compound endpoint, looking at time from date of randomization to the date of first event distant recurrence, death of any cause, or secondary primary non-breast invasive cancer. So that was a lot of words, but basically if somebody had another cancer diagnosed later on, unrelated to their primary breast cancer, the absolute DDFS had a 2.2% benefit favoring the ribocyclob arm. The risk of distant disease was reduced by 26.1% in the ribocyclob arm versus the aromatase inhibitor alone. Dan, I really like the way you explained those results, and I'm going to take this time to give our listeners a little bit longer segment on critical appraisal. The first thing I want to talk about is the way that Dan presented that. He said that there was an absolute difference in invasive disease-free survival by 3.3%. And that corresponds to a risk reduction in disease-free survival by roughly 25%. And for distant disease-free survival, he said absolute difference of 2.2% with, again, a risk reduction of roughly 25%. I want to clarify what a hazard ratio means. And what, when he was saying there was that both of these hazard ratios were around 0.75. When we think about survival analysis or time-to-event analysis, the hazard ratio is simply the instantaneous risk of the event, which is invasive disease in the primary breast or contralateral breast, distant recurrence, or death between treatment A and treatment B. So it's the instantaneous risk of the hazard, which is not necessarily that informative because you need to know how often this event is occurring. If it's occurring extremely frequently, then a 25% reduction means a lot. If it's not happening often at all over your follow-up period, then even if you have a 25% reduction, is that clinically meaningful? And that's where we need to define in these trials, what is a minimal clinically important difference? And that really is important. Is 3% clinically important and meaningful? Or is it 5%? Or is it 6%? And we need to be very clear on how we define that. And here in this trial, we defined it as, let's say, a hazard ratio of 25%, but the event rate matters. 25% when the event's occurring a lot could be an absolute difference of, let's say, 8%, which is a much bigger deal when we think of cancer medicine and three years of adjuvant therapy than 3.3% in an invasive disease-free survival, not even overall survival. The second thing that I want to talk about is why this interim analysis actually demonstrated superiority, and we often say we cannot do that. What was different about this trial? This is unique and I think needs to happen more in cancer clinical trials, and it's called a group sequential trial design. What does this mean? Well, when we design a clinical trial, our goal is to find out, is treatment A superior to treatment B? When we do that, we want to make sure that we do not have a false positive conclusion. 
that just by chance alone, we found that treatment A was better than treatment B, and that is what the p-value is. It's also called the alpha. We always talk about alpha. Same thing as the p-value. So if your alpha is 0.05, that means you must be less than 0.05 to be significant, meaning that essentially my chance of a false positive result is less than 5%. So that's important. So you set that. The second thing you do is you say, well, I need to estimate what effect I'm going to get as a difference between treatment A and treatment B. And this is where that minimal clinically important difference rolls in. You could say that, well, I think what matters is a difference in absolute event rate of 5%, and that corresponds to a hazard ratio, let's say, of 0.6 based on an estimation of how many events I think are going to occur. You can see that this requires a lot of guessing and prior information, right? We, that's the point of doing this trial. We may not know how many events might occur. And that's your power calculation traditionally, that you're saying, well, I also want to make sure I have enough patients so I don't miss a difference, that I don't falsely say that there was no difference between the groups. I don't want a false negative. I want to know I need enough patients to know that there's actually a difference between these two groups. I don't want to just say, let me stop after 10 patients. I want to enroll enough patients. And so I need to know what is my effect size difference. And that will help me determine the number of patients I need based on how many events do I think are going to occur? What is my event rate? So in this study, what their goal was is they landed on, well, by the end of the analysis, we want to say that we have a hazard ratio difference. And I'm just going to give you a number here to keep things simple of 0.75. When they said that, they don't necessarily say this ends up equaling a total absolute difference of, let's say, 5% or 3%. They're giving you a hazard ratio. And everyone says, well, the hazard ratio of 0.7 is clinically meaningful, but it depends on how many events are occurring. So I wanted to make that very clear. In this case, though, Instead of saying that, well, I, I wanted that hazard ratio, I think, let's say, over five years, I think that 500 events are going to occur, and if 500 events are going over five years, and the time to each event takes X amount of time, that means I have a power calculation that I need 1,000 patients in each arm to make sure that I am sure that I'm not going to have a false negative result, that I'm not going to miss a difference when a difference actually exists. And oftentimes that's called the beta or the power, right? And we say like we want, you know, 80% chance that we're not going to have a false negative, right? The false negative rate is only 20%. So that's an example of how that alpha and the beta, the alpha means I don't want a false positive. The beta, you want that to be as high as possible because you don't want to have a false negative. And that's how you determine the number of patients. Now, with this trial, it's with this group sequential design, it's different in that they were pre-specifying interim analyses to say that I don't actually know for sure how many events are going to occur. I don't know how good this targeted drug is at preventing events. So I don't want to guess wrong. And I don't want to expose too many patients to placebo. And at the same time, I don't want to expose too many patients to an ineffective drug if it's not going to actually meet this clinically important difference. So instead of choosing a number, what you can do is pre-specify interim analyses and say, when 300 events occurs, I don't care how many patients are randomized, at the time 300 events have occurred, 
I'm going to stop and do an interim analysis of my data. It could be at that point, 2,000 have occurred in, uh, accrued in each arm. It could be that 1,000 have, have accrued in each arm. It's not the number they're accrued now. It's the number of events that occur. So let's say that actually the effect size difference was a hazard ratio of 0.5 you haven't exposed extra patients to placebo, for example, and it flips both ways. But when you do that and you're looking at the data early, you must pre-specify it because we talked about multiplicity in the last episodes. But also the key thing is if you're checking the data early, you need to have a very specific difference that you're looking for with a specific p-value that will make you certain that there's a superiority that's met. Or you look at the data early and you say, actually, this is futile. There's actually no difference here. And there, so there has to be an upper bound, like meaning if the hazard ratio is 0.7 with a p-value of 0.001 at the first interim analysis, and the lower bound is, let's say, if the hazard ratio was 1.03 with a p-value of 0.001. And you could either meet futility or superiority. And if you met superiority, you stop at that interim analysis. If you met futility, then you also stop, but you say that, hey, drug didn't work. In the other case, when you met superiority, you stop and say, hey, the, the drug did work. And now let's just stop and look for safety analysis. What they did here was they pre-specified after, let's say, 300 events, and then after 425 events, we're going to look at the data. And each time you look at the data, you will have a different p-value that you need and a different pre-specified difference of hazard ratio that you need to meet in order to demonstrate superiority. And that can be calculated. And that's what they called in this trial. If you read the, the methods, they talk about this O'Brien-Fleming spending function. That means is, well, if I'm going to check early, I need a very stringent alpha because I don't want a false positive by chance if I'm just looking early. And that's how this works. The bigger your effect size, the less patients you need. And that's why if they, that's why you have this boundary, right? You have this large effect size, then you can maybe meet there with less events occurring. And that's what they did in this trial. That's why you don't see a pre-specified number of patients. It just so happened to be that it was about 5,000 patients that it took to reach this pre-specified superiority mark. And the big question is, is 3.3 absolute percentage a minimal clinically important difference for three years of adjuvant therapy. That was a great overview. Uh, we definitely need more stats knowledge as we go through Hemonk Fellowship to understand all these complex trials. I do think we should review some of the adverse events that were reported in this study. So at the time of the interim analysis, only 20% of patients completed three years of treatment with ribocyclib and 19% of patients dis discontinued ribocyclib due to an adverse event with a majority of patients continuing with therapy. And so in the ribocyclib arm, 21% discontinued endocrine therapy, whereas 25% discontinued endocrine therapy in the control arm. And therapy discontinuation was driven primarily by physician or patient choice. And then in terms of adverse events, the most frequent adverse events that led to discontinuation of therapy were LFT changes in 9% in the ribocyclib arm versus 0.1% in the endocrine therapy of AI alone arm, and arthralgias with 1.3% in the treatment arm versus 1.9% in the control arm. Other notable adverse events are that there is neutropenia in the patients that got ribocyclib, 
of which 43.8% were greater or equal to grade three. And as expected in the control arm, most patients did not have neutropenia. And then another important side effect to be aware of with ribocyclin is right QTC prolongation. And this is definitely something that they can test you on on your boards. And so 4.2% of patients had any grade QT prolongation on their EKG. And you also have to remember to do routine EKGs for patients on ribocyclib. Um, and as expected, much less patients had QTC prolongation in the control arm. And so the analysis compared these results to those of the Mona Lisa study, which is the study which established the use of ribocyclib in metastatic breast cancer. And overall, they report improved rates of neutropenia as well as QTC prolongation. And this is probably because we had that lower dose in this study of 400 milligram compared to the 600 milligram dose that was used in the Mona Lisa study. That's absolutely correct. And so I guess this finally boils down to how does this change our standard of care? So I think this study included even more patients than the prior Monarchy study. And this suggests that in patients with very high risk features, an additional agent may be beneficial. In this case, we still have to consider that these drugs are not completely benign interventions with portions of the study population still having LFT changes, neutropenia, QTC prolongation, and furthermore, we are now subjecting our patients to three years of therapy instead of two years. More time is needed to see how these data will mature, including that overall survival data that we're all anxiously awaiting. So certainly this highlights that the addition of ribocyclop is beneficial and promising, but I am looking forward to seeing the final analysis in the years to come. And I think what is also important is to see the long-term survival data after the ribo course is completed. I think, I think that's a reasonable conclusion to this. And I, I wanted to talk about a couple more things. One of the important things to me from when I think about the way that this design was planned, again, I want to be very clear that they did these pre-specified interim analysis. The idea here is let's not enroll too many patients because we don't need to do that. And if there's futility, let's stop the, the trial early. The problem with doing that, though, is that we're not powered to look at an overall survival difference in this analysis. So it is going to be very difficult to draw conclusions even as the data matures. We chose to use that IDFS endpoint. The second thing is we chose to pre-specify this IDFS endpoint with a hazard ratio of 0.7, let's say, so around 0.7. So we said, ah, the hazard ratio has to be around 0.7 for us to say there's a significant difference between these two groups. But a hazard ratio does not mean the same as an absolute risk reduction or an absolute benefit. It is a simple ratio. What this corresponded to was, again, a 3% absolute reduction in invasive disease-free survival. When we talked about the rectal cancer abstract for the non-inferiority margin, they ran a non-inferiority margin with knowing that less than 5% difference in overall survival was okay. And in this case, we're saying 3%. So is that clinically meaningful when we think about the toxicities, the financial toxicities, and that we may not actually be gaining much quality life years based on the cost of the drug. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. It's it's a often overlooked and, and very important thing uh, to, to really look at like the holistic impact of a, of a change in standard care. Anybody else have any closing thoughts? No, I'm, I'm good. This was an awesome discussion. Yeah, this was so fun to do uh, in collaboration with the fellow on call. And we're looking forward to doing this again in the future. And as always, if you guys have any questions, comments, or corrections, please reach out to us on our Twitter, Instagram, or website, 2 Onc Docs and the fellow on call.